Welcome to The Art of Faith by Granite Creek Studios. I'm Pastor Joshua Kepchinski, and today's episode, we're going to be talking about the art of J.R.R. Tolkien. For those of you that don't know, J.R.R. Tolkien is the author of The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, Cimmerillion, and some other incredible works. And I'm actually preaching a series on Sunday mornings on the biography of Tolkien. What many people don't know about Tolkien is that he is a, he was a devout Christian, devout Catholic, and all of his works incorporate Christian themes and some very strong Christ types. What's fascinating about Tolkien is his reach is huge. The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, uh, some of the best sold books of all times. The movies by Peter Jackson uh, is considered uh, some of the best-selling films of all time. And now, just recently, we're, I think we're three or four episodes into a Amazon series called The Rings of Power. That series is the most expensive series ever filmed, ever produced, uh, almost pushing a billion in production. Uh, Mr. Bezos is kind of fitting the bill for that. Thank you, Mr. Bezos. And uh, supposedly, it's one of the, mo- the most watched download streaming shows of all time. So, Tolkien's reach is, is huge. Um, and I think that's great news for people of faith, for, for Christians. Because, you know, if you really want to lean into it, if you want to do a little bit of research, you can find the gospel all over his, all over his writings. So today, we'll talk about not only his writings and his stories, but since this is an art show, an art history show, I want to talk about the art of Tolkien, which in many ways is just as important as the books themselves, as important as the literature itself. Tolkien wasn't just an author. He started off as a linguist and Um, a professor of literature. Uh, He translated Beowulf. He translated some of the English dictionary. He was a celebrated intellect in English society. So uh, Oxford trained, and I forgot which, which school he taught at, but he taught for many years and, again, highly respected in his discipline. The stories that he wrote were all stories for his kids. This was his hobby. Uh, I mean, he is best known, and eventually he does become rich because of his hobby. Um, You know, after a long day at work, he would come home and start writing down these, scratching out these little stories. But in addition to writing out the stories, uh, he, he did art. He painted and he sketched things out. He made graphics and maps. Uh, the, the guy was just, and it's not not half bad. So we're gonna, I'm gonna be showing some pictures of Tolkien's uh, art, both his own personal art and then how his graphic art inspires artists that that we enjoy today. So here is Mr. Tolkien, handsome guy in his tweed jacket. Very, very proper. Uh, you know, he just looks—he just looks like an intellect. And, he, and again, he was. Fascinating thing about him is that uh, 
he had a lot going against him. His father died when he was a boy. His mother passes away when he was 12. So him and his older brother were orphaned um, right in their preteen years. And what's fascinating or encouraging is that he gets adopted by the church. So a Catholic priest becomes his um, his ward and it takes care of him. And, and so that's, that's the part of the short story of him. And then uh, they just noticed how smart he was, and he gets he gets put into some some um, Ivy League type of colleges. Here's a picture of him. Uh, oh yeah, and by the way, this one this podcast is gonna definitely be on the more visual side. So if you're listening, great job on listening, but you're gonna just wanna have to go to the YouTube channel uh, and watch it because there's lots of graphics in this one. Here's a picture of him uh, in his older years, probably when he was retired, side by side when he was young. And this picture of him as the younger Tolkien, you know, maybe 20s, most likely taken after the war. Uh, what we should know, what's important if you want to do a deep dive into Tolkien, is that he fought in World War I, and that experience plays heavily into his writings and into the art. And uh, if you want to compare Tolkien's writings maybe to C.S. Lewis's writings, Tolkien's writings are going to come off a little bit darker. Uh, we don't know if he, they don't, Lewis and, and Tolkien don't go into depths about what they experienced in World War One, But what we do know is that it was bad. Uh, Tolkien fought at the Battle of Somme, which was one of history's worst battles. Um, it, there was more casualties in that battle than, than, than all of the, well, not all of them put together, but um, it was bad. So over, all in all, during World War One, some 500,000 soldiers died in a short amount of period of time. When Tolkien gets back from World War One, uh, he he ended up getting trench fever, which honestly probably saved him saved his life. When he gets back, uh, all but one of his friends, uh, all of one of the, the people that he went to school with, uh, had died, and so very psychologically impactful, most likely psychologically damaging. Although there, we don't really see any reports of him being psychologically damaged. Although when you read some of his stuff, it's pretty dark. Some of the, some of his stuff is pretty dark, and you can kind of see some of his, you know, he's working things out. But in the midst of his darkness, in the midst of experiencing the war, and maybe some would say, fleshing these things out on paper. What he does do that a lot of writers during this time don't do is that he always contrasts the dark with the light. So, you know, we'll probably talk about some of the characters that are in difficult situations. And even in the midst of the darkness, there's always love and there's always beauty to be found. So that's, that's what makes him, in my opinion, one great writer. Uh, but in addition to being a great writer, he's not a bad artist. So this is one of the uh, this is one of his drawings that he did for the Hobbit, and colors are great. Composition is amazing. 
This is the story of the hobbits escaping uh, from the Mirkwood Elves, and they are riding out on the barrels into safety. So it's great. And in the Senate, the, the movie version, of course, they just kind of take it over the top, and that, it, well, it's extreme, but it's still good. Um, but this is a very sweet painting, and it's good. I mean, the guy can write, and the guy can paint at the same time. It's just, um, again, composition's great. You feel it, and it, and aesthetically, it's pleasing. And that's why I like these, that's why I like Tolkien's work. This is Rivendell, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty to look at, but what Tolkien is also doing when he is making his, he's putting what he's, he's written down into graphic form, it's gonna, it's gonna set the stage for uh, future artists to build off of them. So when we'll be looking at some other work that would be considered better than this, artistically speaking, Regardless, all of the artists that come after Tolkien, including the filmmakers, they're building off of his works, off of his visual works in addition to his written works. So, really cool. Uh, Tolkien is a master, or he has, a, I shouldn't say he's a master, but he has a mind for not only landscape, but um, geography. So he's, we're gonna, he, he does the geographical sides. Oh, here's the, the this is the dragon smog and Bilbo playing tricks on him. And, you know, laying on a big giant mound of gold. And so this is, this is kind of a, it's a lot, right? It's, it's not, he, he, Tolkien takes things to extremes. Now for us, this might not see, be too extreme, but like when it came out, it's like, that's a big giant pile of gold. And of course the movie version of the desolate, desolation of smog it's great because they just have mountains of gold like flowing all over the place. And Bilbo's in the in the really right corner, you know, with his invisibility ring on and uh, having the, the, the battle of the wills with the dragon smog. I love it. It's great. Uh, but the same type of idea. So this isn't probably the best dragon in the world. This isn't the best interior of a dwarfish mind, but all of the artists from here on, they're gonna build off of Tolkien's visual foundation. Uh, this is Hobbiton, and it, it gets very sweet, it's very aesthetically pleasing, and uh, Peter Jackson pretty much just kind of rips it off. If you go frame by frame through the movie, you'll see the, the same framework of Hobbiton, and I, I think it's just great. Um, very well done, obviously, from, from Tolkien's perspective. In this shot, we have a mill uh, in the forefront on a little lake and just pretty trees and pretty scenery. Um, Tolkien grew up in a town called Birmingham, and during the Industrial Revolution or the Industrial Age, uh, Birmingham begins to develop at a very fast pace. Uh, but if you cross the tracks, if you, if you go on a little bike ride into the country, the country is right there. And this is where Tolkien grew up. He grew up next to a mill. He grew up next to forests and meadows and ponds. And so he has a, a, an affinity for nature. 
You could you could say, although he probably wouldn't like me saying this, but you could say that that Tolkien is the original tree hugger. He has he has this uh, this connection to nature that we see in the books, and it's primarily because of where he grew up, and he grew up in a mill like this. Uh, but he also was exposed to um, the industrialized um, part of England, and he doesn't like it. He just he just clearly does not like industry. And the man never even owned a car. He he would walk to work, and he he just didn't like. He would he would not be one of those that that would be on board with progress. Uh, he he enjoyed the simpler things in life. Uh, this is one of his sketches of the Lonely Mountain. He's got a little dragon up there, and you know it's kind of got this neat little gothic feel. Uh, there's some people on a boat down below. Uh, again, it sets the tone for artists in the future. This picture here is of there of the Mines of Moria. So um, there is you know huge mountain in the back, uh, huge giant granite wall. And then, and faintly, there is a, a little door with two trees on either side. But if you if you get up real close, you'll see that this door is ginormous, and that the gates of Moria has this magic uh, seal to it that you have to speak friend and enter if you remember from the movies. So this is another great example of the artists and the filmmakers taking their visual cues from Tolkien himself. Um, and yeah, I think it's awesome. Uh, he'd made lots of maps, completely obsessed with geography. And so uh, he maps out all of Middle Earth and you know exactly where you're at, you know exactly where your heroes are. So visually in your mind when you're reading it, you can place uh, the characters where they are in in space and in the time. Uh, so yeah, he made his own maps too. In addition to making those ma his own maps and his own drawings and writing his own works, I, the nerd even wrote his own languages. So he invented an elfish language, he invented a dwarfish language, he invented all kinds of stuff. He's literally creating his own world and from his own little world, uh, we're again, we're able to build off of it, and because we can, we can picture it, we can imagine it. Um, this, you know, it's not bad. I mean, not bad for a writer. All right. So my first uh, exposure to uh, the works of Tolkien with would probably be similar to most people my age. So I'm a 50 year old man, and uh, 1978, uh, the Tolkien or the Hobbit came out uh, in in cartoon form. Uh, this is a uh, oh, excuse me. This is 1977. This is a Raskin Basque production of the Hobbit, and this is what this is what uh, teachers had us watch uh, when they didn't want to teach. So remember The Hobbit coming out. And uh, so this began the fascination for me and probably most uh, young people is that they saw this cartoon first and then they jumped in and they read, read the book. 
Uh, if you're familiar with The Hobbit, the next one, um, the next book that comes out is The Lord of the Rings. And in 1978, um, Ralph Bashkin produces an incredible work um, called The Lord of the Rings. And it is the sequel. And this is where it gets a little confusing. It's the sequel of The Hobbit. So there's just not a whole lot of... Um, there wasn't a whole lot of communication and collaboration between these two works. So the first movie, The Hobbit, is definitely more of a little kid type of cartoon. Lord of the Rings comes out but with um, uh, Bashkin, Ralph Bashkin, and it's just, it's something else altogether. Uh, so when I was a little bit older, in, in elementary school, we had this thing called the marble jar. And if kids behaved themselves, if there wasn't any chaos in class, if the teacher thought that the whole class did a great job, she'd put a marble in the jar, all right? And then all year long, everybody tried to be really good to put a marble in the jar. At the end of the year, if that jar is full, or even in the beginning of the year, if the jar is full, then this, the class gets to pick. Uh, the, a movie to watch in class. And this is back in the days of uh, VCR tapes and stuff like that. So it was old school. And so if you filled up your marble jar in school uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, um, girls would want to, they would always pick Freaky Friday. That would be the movie that the girls would pick. That's the ones that they'd vote for. So usually it was a boy-girl decision. Uh, so girls get to choose a, a movie one time, you know, the first time the jar gets picked up, filled up, and then the boys would get to watch or get to pick the movie the second time. So boys always picked The Lord of the Rings after they filled up their marble jar. So I was probably exposed to Lord of the Rings first in the classroom uh, and a visually completely different than the Kitty Hobbit show. So uh, what Bashkin does... So he uses animation, uh, traditional uh, cartoon animation, and then he goes as far as, uh, and this is a technique that um, cartoonists were doing in the very beginnings of uh, film, is that he, he put um, animation on top of film footage. So he's literally painting or illustrating film and incorporating real characters, real horses uh, into his cartoon. So this creepy Nazgul guy with his horse that has red eyes uh, would be an example of that. So this is Gandalf. This is, again, this is a real rider on a real horse that they animate over on top of uh, in addition to um, in addition to uh, animating a cartoon Gandalf. So they did both and they intertwined both of them. Ralph uh, was a genius at this. He He's famous for other late 70s, early 80s works. He did this movie called Heavy Metal and then another one, uh, The Cool World with a very, very young Brad Pitt. And using these same types of techniques, uh, Ralph was kind of a... Uh, a pioneer of fantasy art and fantasy cartoons uh, most likely a pervert but like what he did with the Lord of the Rings is huge and it set it set a major tone
So this is kind of the um, the progression of how I was exposed to, to Lord of the Rings or, or, or um, Tolkien visually. Now, after the Lord of the Rings, they don't make a sequel. The third book in the series is called The Return of the King. And so, unfortunately, Ralph does not do a, a sequel to the Lord of the Rings. But who does is Baskin does. And so the same uh, producer of the Kitty Hobbit uh, does not do the Lord of the Rings, skips that because Ralph does it. Um, but Baskin produces the third and final book, uh, The Return of the King. So we go from kitty art to somewhat cool graphics uh, with Baskin back to kitty art again. And this one was released for uh, straight to TV. So it didn't even go into the theaters. It was a, a, one of those you know specials that they did. And it was, it was good. And what I remember most of it uh, was there's this, it was, a, it was a musical, which was cheesy. But again, if you're a kid, it was awesome. Uh, and there's this saying that the orcs say, or the song that they that they sing that's still stuck in my hip, my head, and it is like, where there is a whip, there is a way, and so I love that. So I, I'll quote that every once in a while. Where there's a whip, there's a way. All right. So, uh, what uh, the animated series and the film that will come out later uh, in the 2000s, what they were inspired on beyond uh, beyond Tolkien's you know graphics and scratches some incredible work by an artist named Alan Lee and another artist named John Howell both of which are absolutely incredible in illustrating the books uh, there is a debate on who is the better Illustrator, is it Alan Lee or is it John Howell? And it's it's a it's a subjective question. It's really hard to answer. But this one uh, is the dwarves all locked up and in, um, in, in their in their minds, not wanting to share their gold or not you know wanting to keep this Arkenstone for themselves. This one is an Alan Lee painting, and here's another Alan Lee painting. So this is. Uh, this is Gandalf at the gates of Moria, that secret door that opens up. Again, this is uh, building off of Tolkien's original work there. So you've got the two trees on the side. And uh, this is Gondolin, if you're familiar with the movie. Again, Alan Lee. Uh, very uh, light brushstrokes, very light, uh, kind of a little more wispy. It's great. Here it is here too. This is Rivendell. So if you remember back to that first picture I showed you of Tolkien's Riverdell with the Rivendell with a stream flowing through bridge. And so very similar. Um, okay, and then this is Alan Lee's depiction of Olmo and Tour from the Cimmerillion uh, before the Hobbit, before um, Lord of the Rings, uh, Tolkien made an entire mythology with something similar to Greek gods or Norse gods. And so this, this guy, Olmo, is, uh, he's basically Neptune and he is inspiring Tour um, and his purpose is to make sure that uh, the children of God are protected. And so it's a very powerful scene in the book. Uh, this artist, this is John Howell, 
and uh, this kind of goes back. To, this is this is the very beginnings of the Silmarillion. This is the very beginnings of the the battle between light and dark. And so, part of Tolkien's mythology is that before there was a, the creation of the sun and the moon. And so, incidentally, yeah, we are dealing with the mythology. We're dealing with uh, gods and goddesses, but. In Tolkien's world, he does make one supreme being, which his name is Iluvatar. And Iluvatar is, he's God, and he just has all these sub-creatures, these sub-creations, which Tolkien calls gods. You could call them angels or whatever. But uh, So, before the sun and the moon were created, um, there was, the gods created two trees for their source of light on earth and so these two trees would merge and mingle and they would produce light one a golden light one a silver light and um, uh, this dark scary looking character with the big giant sword in the in the background his he is the devil himself so he's one of the gods that doesn't like what's going on uh, much like the devil in the bible his name is melkor and uh, he's, he's jealous. He wants all the power for himself. And so he, uh, he convinces this creepy spider, which is basically a demon. It's not like a real spider. Um, yeah, it's basically like a fallen angel. And because of the fall, because of his decision, he take, she takes on this hideous form, Ungoliant the spider. And so the story goes, the elves... Um, uh, before humans were created, elves are in this blissful garden of Eden, if you will, and their whole world is warmed and lit up by these two trees. And the Melkor, the evil guy, uh, has had enough, and he is going to stab these trees, and then this big giant demon spider is going to suck the light right out of them. And so, and that begins the big, the big drama that that plays throughout um, all of Tolkien's stories, even in the Lord of the Rings. The the rings actually have something to do with these trees of light as well. But I don't have time to get into that. But this is John Howe, and he is probably he. If you had to compare John Howe and Alan Lee, he's going to be the starker of the two. His his images are a little darker. Uh, this is this is Sam fighting Shelob, and this spider is a descendant of Ungoliant, the spider that sucked the light out of the trees. So, you know, Ungoliant had all of her evil offspring, and uh, Shelob is one of them. And so, yeah, definitely darker, more graphic, more intense. Um, John Howell is cool. All right. And there's another John Howe. So here's his Gandalf. And so you can obviously see that Gandalf on the movie is based really closely to this guy. Um, probably one of the better artists. Okay, so this one, like lots of drama in John Howell's stuff. Lots of movement. Uh, this is Frodo escaping the Nazgul. And uh, in the movie, uh, I hate to to be all poo-poo on everything that's that's movie. I love I love the movies, but in the movie, um, the 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 pretty elf queen is the one that summons the the flood to, to take over and consume the bad guys. But in the book, it's Elrond. It's um it's the elf king, the high elf king, and uh, it's just 
John Howell uses different perspectives and different dramatic uh, points just to communicate the emotion and the drama behind it. So, I love it. This is going to look very familiar to from the movies. Um, so this is where the Nazgul are riding um, to find Frodo and the rings, and they're hiding under the tree. So clearly the movie took inspiration from this. Uh, the cartoon did too. This is a scene from the Cimmerillion. So uh, this is Gondolin. Uh, so this is a huge elf, hidden elf city, tucked away in the mountains where the devil doesn't know where it is. And of course, uh, eventually it's going to fall because they're... Um, Somebody in the castle betrays the kingdom, and uh, the devil releases releases all of his scary demons and dragons, and they destroy the city. It's a it's a it's a tragedy. Uh, Tour the guy that I showed you earlier that is um, uh, talking to Neptune. He's he's the one that saves the remnant of this city uh, from that moment. He had that interaction that he has with God. But as you can see, like John Howe is. Like, he's just a great artist, in addition to all the fantasy stuff that he's producing. All right, so this is John Howell's depiction of um, Tour and, and uh, Ulmo, the, the sea god. And this one is the Nazgul, and minus, uh, uh, not minus Tirith, uh, I forgot, the, some evil castle. And again, this is very stark, very bold. Um, his monsters are absolutely incredible. And uh, when Peter Jackson began to produce uh, the Hobbit series or the Lord of the Rings series, he hired John Howell and Alan Lee as art directions. And so it looks very similar to the movie. And then uh, specifically, John Howe, when they began to to create these monsters for the movie, they he got obsessed with the actual. Okay, can this can this thing actually fly? Like, so th they thought of everything. And this is a John Howe's uh, depiction of the fall of minus of the attack on Minas Tirith. So you have you can see the elephants there, and you can see the Nazgul and the orcs, you know, whipping their their guys to fight. Where there where there's a whip, there's a way, right? But yeah, it's cool that Peter Jackson uh, leaned heavily on these artists to give us the imagery that that we all love from the movies. All right, and then I'll just I'll just end with this. So I probably could keep going on. Uh, some of the graphics. Maybe I'll do a part two. Here's the thing about Tolkien and in his movies, is that not he doesn't he's not just writing a book. He he's creating his own little world, his own little universe. He's and he he lives in it constantly. Um, this is something that he was having fun with, and I'll, I'll end with this quote. And this is where we'll tie it into faith. Tolkien says, a single dream is more powerful than a thousand realities. What in the world does that mean? So, you know, is he, he, 
he's got a he's got an overactive imagination. Tolkien and his friend C.S. Lewis, they're going to say that imagination is the stuff of God. Is that he is that God gives us an imagination to create things that don't exist. And in that is the very nature and character of God is 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 creativity. And so even though Tolkien is creating a mythology, he's creating gods, he's, he's got wizards, um, he's got magic, uh, you can break all of those tropes down and you can see the gospel in the entire story. Tolkien does this in a way that requires a lot of creativity, but he pulls it off. Gandalf is a very strong Christ type. Gandalf fights evil, he dies, he resurrects, he comes back as a, as a resurrected, um, enlightened body being, and, but he continues to do the work. Aragorn in Lord of the Rings is the king that, that is to return. Again, another Christ type. Frodo carries the ring, which symbolizes evil and sin itself, and sacrifices his life for to, to carry evil. Uh, Tolkien messes around with that. So that one doesn't completely translate at the very end because he, he had a, a high regard of who Christ is. So it's just it's very fascinating. So uh, in many ways, Tolkien is communicating gospel in a creative way that, that um, well, has translated all over the world and most people know the stories. Nope, that's it for me right now. Uh, hope you enjoyed the visuals. Maybe I'll do a part two. It feels like there's a lot of graphics that I didn't even get to. But I wanted just to geek out on Tolkien's art, on John Howell's art, and on Alan, e, Alan Lee's and the films and the cartoons that inspired me. So I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see you again next time on the Art of Faith podcast. Take care.